Welcome to the world's premier Black Crows podcast. State of America. Hosted by two of the band's most dedicated fans, David Hudson and Ian Rice. And now, let's get the show on the road. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the State of America podcast. I am your host, Ian Rice, and not with me, as always, is Mr. David Hudson. Unfortunately for us, but fortunately for David, he is abroad in the UK at the University of Cambridge, presenting his thesis, Sting Me versus Sting Me Slow. And I'll we'll be anxious to hear how that goes over and how he makes out with that. So you just got me, and I'm going to quickly introduce this week's episode to you. This week, David and I sat down with a relatively new friend of mine, but somebody that David's known for a little bit longer. David met this gentleman at the Rock and Pod Expo, the first time he went with his other podcast, Digital Killed the Radio Star. And then I met this gentleman a couple of years later when we took State of Morica to the same expo. He's a gentleman who is uh, a face of many podcasts, the most notable being Growing Up Rock. And that's a great podcast. You should definitely, definitely check it out. And at the forefront of that podcast is the gentleman we had as our guest, Mr. Sonny Pooney. Now, the concept for this episode was much like the one we did with Stephen Wright, where we take someone that's not particularly seasoned with the Crows catalog and present to them a series of songs that we think might suit their musical palette. It's always very interesting to David and I to do something like this because we get to see how the Crows affect somebody that's not necessarily as deep down the rabbit hole as we all are. So it's a very, very interesting experiment, if you will. I mean, let's face it, we are the two most prestigious scientists that Amorica has to offer. Now, I don't want anybody to listen to this and, and get upset at some of Sonny's opinions or, you know, get, uh, you know, start sending us angry messages or anything like that. You have to bear in mind that Sonny is not the fan that we all are. He's not a diehard. He's just a fan of music. He'll, he details some of the things that he's into. And the remarkable thing about Sonny Pooney is he's very well thought out in his opinions, and he really doesn't care what other people think about his musical taste, and I mean that in the best way possible. He's his own man, and he likes what he likes, and he's very upfront about it. So David and I think you're all going to enjoy this episode. We really had a lot of fun recording it. We will definitely have Sonny back in the future. By the way, if you think you might know a good candidate to participate in one of these type of episodes, drop us a line at stateofamorica at gmail.com or message us on one of our many social media platforms and let us know who you got, and maybe they can uh, work their way into a future episode. All right, everybody, let's get on with the Smasher Trash Volume 2 with Mr. Sonny Pony. <laughs>
Well, first of all, Sonny, you know you're one of my favorite people I've ever met in podcasting, and you were the first person that ever guessed it on Digital Killed the Radio Star. We did a, uh, uh, I think we did an episode about underrated vocalist, and yeah, uh, yeah. that was man, that was very. That's back when I was sitting in my closet when I was recording, and now I got like a <laughs> studio or whatever. But uh, it's always fun to talk to you. You're one of my favorite people to see at Rock and Pod. You're always a barrel of positivity, and uh, you're kind of the mayor of the podcast world, aren't you? You know everybody. Hey, uh, you have been a guest on Chris Jericho's podcast, and that's kind of a big deal. I trust me, it's not because of my personality. It might be because of my good looks. That that's a possibility, but. Uh, <laughs> It's not the personality. It's, you know, somebody calls, I pick up the phone and answer. That's that's basically what it is. How does the Jericho thing happen? Uh, the Jericho thing happened because I do uh, album review crew with these guys from Shout It Out Loudcast. They're good friends with Jericho. Okay. Jer- Jericho found out the next album we were going to do. He wanted to join in. He joined in, and then he said, you guys need to come on mine and do the rat thing. And I'm like... Is he gonna be okay with what I say? Cause I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna agree much. Like Stephen Piercy, who you are really pushing it, buddy. <laughs> What's what I like about you, Sonny, and 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 I'm telling everybody that uh, one of the podcasts you're on is Growing Up Rock with our good buddy Stephen Michael. Uh, I think you guys basically started almost like the same week that that I started Digital Kill. It's pretty close. That podcast focuses on. Uh, well, growing up rock, kind of rock from your past, your childhood, your teens, early adult years. You guys do a great job, and y'all are equal opportunity offenders because half the time I'm yelling at you, half the time I'm yelling at Steven. But, all right, so, Sonny, before we get into this, I want to establish a few things for our audience for you. I'm, I think I know you pretty well, so tell me if I've got anything wrong here, okay? Your favorite okay. artist is Prince, yes or no? Yes. You have more Prince songs in your library than any other artist. Uh, I have more Prince songs in my library than my top 20 artists put together that aren't Prince. Okay. You, uh, (laughs) you, you are a really big fan of Kiss. Yes. You are a really big fan of, uh, Jeff Scott Soto and all of his works. That is correct. You're a huge fan of Richie Kotzen, as am I, one of the most underrated musicians of our time. And he's playing here in two weeks around the corner, so we will see him for twenty-five dollars. By the way, it's not bad. And uh, you also were big into, if I remember correctly, like soul and R&B, kind of like Bruno Mars, right? Yeah, I like um, I like Prince, obviously. Mm-hmm. I liked uh, James Brown. I got into the '60s music, which we'll talk mm-hmm. about here in a little while, and that kind of connects to some of these artists that are trying to do something similar today, right? So I liked some of the 90s hip-hop that was more soul-oriented, mm-hmm. not gangster rap. Right. And Bruno Mars is bringing all this stuff to this generation, which is great. In terms of other uh, rock artists, who are you into? Y&T, which is a Bay Area band that got big for a while. Uh, obviously, Kiss, Van Halen, Iron Maiden. I'm a huge Maiden fan. Uh, Whitesnake, Night Ranger, Foreigner, Great White, Warrant. Like, you know, it's... It's the bands that there was this guitar, right? It was plugged in, possibly a guitar god connected to it. This great vocal that had melody and a singable voice, right? Like the rat thing. Like I like the first album. It goes downhill from there because I can't stand Stephen Piercy's voice, right? So uh, Cinderella, like the first album, but then it goes to blues and I lose interest. Like So there's, there's a bang zone there. 
Now, let me ask you this, just to maybe get another way of looking at this that I don't normally see it. My problem a lot of times with music of that period, now, obviously, I like the Great Whites and the Lawrence and things, but some of the other stuff, what holds me back on that is uh, lyrically. Sometimes yeah. I have a, a hard time getting past it lyrically. Now, maybe I'm not looking at it the right way. But yet you, you know, like Def Leppard Euphoria. <laughs> All right. Even I'm trying so, to have a conversation here. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why I didn't mention faster pussycat <laughs> right so yes first of all kiss has some of the dumbest lyrics ever so if it's going to be only lyrics i can't listen to kiss anymore right but oh, yeah. what i do is like 95 percent of the history i know in this world is because steve harris from iron maiden taught it to me like that's right. about it right but then if i want sexy soul r&b rock white snakes it right and it's, it's got all the connotations you would want but, you know, if you want, like, smart music, you got to go to, like, Rush and that kind of stuff. I can't listen to that stuff because it's boring to me. I need three-and-a-half, four-minute songs. I want stuff that would have hit the charts, been on the radio, want it to be memorable and be humming the melody lady go later and go, why am I humming that melody? Like, what the hell just happened? Right. So that kind of stuff. But the lyrics, uh, it comes and goes, but it can't be too sleazy. And, like, Steel Panther, like, some of it I can't really listen to. Right, so but yeah. it doesn't have to be super smart either. Now, Steel Panther is that I can't figure it out. Is that are they a genuine band or is that like a that's parody, you know, like a send up? Is it like the darkness? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I think they're trying to be both. Right, yeah. I think they're trying to show that they have musicianship, but they're trying to be funny about it. Sometimes it hits. Sometimes it's on the raunchy side. You know, you got comedians that end up like that too. There's like. There's a part you can listen to that's like, oh, man, did you have to go like to that level? Can you come back a little? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Ian, he's also, uh, like you and I, a big Sammy Hagar guy with Van Halen. Oh, yeah. Oh, Excellent. yeah. Excellent. Um, oh, yeah. Hagar's we, one of my favorites. One of my absolute favorite Van Halen songs is Humans Being. I love the guitar tone that Eddie was using on that and can't get this stuff no more and, you know, yeah. and that stuff. But anyway, so let me. we had a little methodology to this. First of all... I am I am like you like ballads. I like ballads. Yes. I don't shy away from it. Unlike some of our other podcast friends who probably really like the ballads more than us, but they're too scared to say it. <laughs> Steve Wright, Steve Michael. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so my methodology: I picked five songs, and Ian picked five songs. Knowing you're more for the hard rock type stuff, I picked more things that the Crows do that. None of their stuff's ever going to be called hard rock, but but a, a little harder. And then I threw in a ballad because I know you like ballads, and it it gets kind of hard after Shake Your Money Maker to find too much hard stuff because they they just changed every album and four or five albums in they tried to redo Shake Your Money Maker and you know it, it's a very divisive time. And then toward the end of their recorded output, they uh, did more Americana stuff, but. Uh, Ian, how, what was your methodology on your five songs? I just tried to pick things that maybe more so focused on Rich's riffs because he's known for a good riff, which makes for a, you know a, a decidedly more heavy song. And then I you know I tried to throw in a couple of their most shining moments that could be considered balladish. You know what I mean? Yeah. All right. So we're gonna start off with uh, what is my favorite Black Crow song of all time. Uh, a big, huge portion of the fan base. This is their favorite song. Sonny, you wouldn't like it in concert. It goes about 15, 16 minutes every time. But it's off an album that debuted at number one, produced a huge hit with Remedy, and the name of the song is My Morning Song. (laughs) 
Sonny, what you got? All right, so before I get into it, I'll tell you that all 10 songs were brand new to me. Okay. That's I what we never wanted. I heard any of the 10 songs. I think I, I heard one once, but I couldn't remember it anyway if I did. I tried listening a bunch of different ways, similar to Righty, right? I tried to listen to the car. Some of this I could not listen to the car. We'll get to that soon. Um, you know, and then just kind of listen to, you know, when you're uh, working around the house or whatever. Yeah. My morning song. Okay, I will tell you that live, I would slit my wrist if this shit lasted 15 minutes. <laughs> I, 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 dude, I, I've had the benefit of seeing them live. Thank God this song was, I don't think was out yet when I saw them. But uh, I like the groove. I like the vocal melody. I think the vocal's outstanding. I think as a great chorus, kind of like that gospel sound. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the cool breakdown with like the bass thumping and, you know, nice guitar fills. I just thought the breakdown was a little too long. The song didn't have to be six minutes, but uh, the production's great, and overall the song was really good. So when I when I heard the first song, I'm like, okay, this thing has uh, this has opportunity. <laughs> well, you know that I mean that like we said that album debuted at number one, and you know Remedy was everywhere. It still played yeah. in baseball stadiums and Howard Stern show and everything. Um, that album was uh, them coming off road. They recorded it in eight days. So Now, one thing that the Crows do that a lot of other bands don't do, they play songs, a lot of songs before they ever record them. They'll play them live for a couple of years, flush them out. Uh, they started playing songs off this right off the bat when they started Shake Your Moneymaker. Am I right, Ian? Or at least songs that would turn into them. Yeah, they kind of you know worked a lot of things out on the road. Sonny, I'm interested to know, when you go to see something in concert, do you prefer to just hear the songs as they were on the record do you like to know that you're getting the you know the quote-unquote hits like what what's your what's your ideal concert experience uh i'm not just a hits guy because most likely i'm not going to see a band that i only know the hits the song has to be close in length it doesn't have to be uh perfect in melody or rock so i'll give you an example i am a unbelievably big hall of notes fan Mm-hmm. I've seen Hall of Notes 30 plus times. Daryl Hall has never sang a song the same way. I swear <laughs> to God, you can't sing along with the guy because it's melody. I'm like, okay, I guess I'll just shut up and just enjoy. You know, I learned it about the second time I saw him. I'm like, I think I'm just going to have to enjoy the music. I can't sing along because Daryl's doing what Daryl does, right? Right. But then with Y&T, let's say, for instance, Dave Manichetti plays every guitar solo to the note. And those guitar solos sometimes are vocal melodies to me. And that's amazing to me. Mm-hmm. Right? So it just kind of depends. But it doesn't have to be perfect. And But it can't be 15 minutes. Like, those guys go 15 minutes with a song. I'd be so mad. I'm like, you could have played two more songs. What are you doing? <laughs> All right. So, Sonny, the next song was actually the lead single, which I think was a mistake off of um, – their, their third album, Amorica, and if you remember from the album cover, it generated a lot of controversy, and that hurt album sales because Walmart and Kmart and Target and all those places wouldn't sell it until they made a different cover. But the song is called A Conspiracy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
All right, so I'm going to tell you the good part of this. <laughs> I liked the music. That was it. The song did not feel like it flowed well together to me. Like the verse is choppy. The chorus is kind of flat. And Chris's voice. So here's, here's my thing with Chris. His vocal is what attracted me initially to the Black Crows to begin with, right? Different, unique. You know, I've told people it's like a combination of like Steve Marriott, Mick Jagger, Rod Stewart, Jeff Keith. Put them in a blender and have them smoke a joint. And you got like, yeah. you know, it's just so different, yeah. right? But it's easy to listen to. But when the vocal melody like this seems like it's like forced onto the music, man, he gets annoying to me quick. Because then he's trying to save it with the runs that he does, those bluesy runs. And I know I'm like, dude, you're trying too hard. The song sucks. Stop trying so hard and move <laughs> on. <laughs> okay? And then he gets annoying to me very quickly. I did not enjoy this song. Okay. Ian, you're in agreement with me that probably wasn't the best choice off that album. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I, I, I like mean, as, as, a, as a lead single. Yeah, I, I enjoy the song. Uh, I think something else would have been better suited to be the, the first song you heard out of the gate. But, you know, the Crows are notorious for picking an odd first single, so... For for so many albums, whatever the second song on the running order was, was the lead, was the lead single. Um, yes. Which was kind of weird. All right, Sonny, so we mentioned... They come out with Southern Harmony, number one album on the charts. They're offered the opening slot on Metallica and Guns N' Roses tour. They tell them thanks, but no thanks. They go and headline uh, arenas and theaters on their own, do a huge business. And then with Amorica, which was the third album, they they evolved a little bit more. The songwriting was, was different. The sound was, there was all these different layers and textures. They were getting more into like a mellow psychedelic style. And then the fourth album, Three Snakes and One Charm, well, it's just it's their drug album. It's it's kind of like you know some of those Kiss albums. I think that people don't initially latch on to, but as time goes on, they get better. Three Snakes is like that for a lot of people. That's when they were just real jam heavy. So they're in trouble with the record label. They've got to put out something. They sign with uh, I believe it's Columbia, and they're like, we got to have Shake Your Money Maker number two which I don't think they're ever going to, you know, that's one of those things you don't think you can recapture, but they put out an album that's got more of a traditional rock style. This is one of the two most divisive albums in the catalog. I appreciate every era of the band. I love every era of the band, but that 92, 97 is what people really hold on to. And they went back to this more conventional hard rock sound. Now the Crows have four or five songs in their catalog that the lyrics aren't that great. This is one of them. But I'm interested to hear your take on kicking my heart around. Loved it. It was my favorite song out of the 10. I thought you would, yeah. 
Yeah. Straightforward. You know, the vocals in the chorus are catchy. Backing vocals are helping. The groove's awesome. I love the melody in the verses. I liked it that on the album he was like listed as diva, which is, you know, that's cool. Yeah. That that call and answer type thing that's going on with the vocal guitar and the verses mm-hmm. was really cool. And it's radio friendly. Mm-hmm. I mean, this checked all the boxes. I'm I like, think oh, it was the lead if single. Every black, if every black close song is like this, home run. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. When they went in to record with uh, Kevin Shirley, who's produced a lot of you know, uh, rock records and is a renowned producer, his, his direction to them for recording this song was get it in your head like you're 17 again and just rock. And they kind of wrote this like on the fly in the studio. And I, of all the tracks on the, on the ones that we picked for you, I thought this was going to be the top one for you as well, based on what yeah. David told me. We, yeah, and and the lyrics aren't terrible. They just, I, th- I think you had, like you said, you have this amazing groove and I love the slide guitar playing in it. You know, whenever you give Chris a song, a song to start sounding a little bit like a Southern Baptist preacher, he knocks it out of the park. He's got such a soulful voice. I just wish the lyrics would have been a little bit different on this one. So they do that album, and then they do this huge tour with Jimmy Page, which was just awesome. Wide open. It, the, the Led Zeppelin songs sounded like they were when they were recorded because they had three guitar players. They played stuff that Zeppelin rarely ever played. They toured that for a while, had a live album, uh, played on Jay Leno with with Paige, and they go in to record their next album, and they get signed to V2 Records. Isn't that right, Ian? Is it V2? That's right. And Don Was is called in to produce the album Lions. Now, this album is as divisive amongst the fan base as anything. Ian and I happen to like it. There's three or four songs I wish they wouldn't have put on there and would have swapped out. That's that's a story for another day. But this was one of the singles. It's kind of probably their last song that they've released that got played on the radio, and it's called Soul Singing. Yeah, so I like the way it started. I like that the music had a little groove to it. Mm-hmm. I'm glad I listened to the whole song because the end of that, that sing, sing, sing along, mm-hmm. sing, sing, that was the most interesting part because the rest of the song, it's boring. Like really? The chorus is boring. The song is just not that catchy. And then so I was listening to some Chris Robinson interview. Like I was just flipping through mm-hmm. YouTube, trying to watch some videos, listen to the songs, and and I thought I heard him say something like him and Rich, like it took them forever to put this together. I'm like, they wasted their time. They, they, they didn't need <laughs> well, this song is actually well received by the fan base and in concert. It's a, uh, it's a lot of fun. It gets people up and going right Ian. Yeah, definitely. This is, um, this is one too, for a time that they did uh, stretch out considerably. So it would have been even worse for you in concert. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I can imagine concert, it probably works okay because it's very gospel and thematic, right? And it's the, that, that chorus that I say is boring is it's easy to get the crowd going with it. So I could imagine live it works, but yeah, on tape, uh, I didn't enjoy that one. 
All right, so the next the next song is Oh Josephine off the War Pain album. And this was after they had gotten back together with Mark Ford for two years, toured. Mark Ford left the band. They brought in Luther Dickinson of the North Mississippi All-Stars. Obviously, he's got a little more of a blues Americana tinge to him. Uh, they bring him in, and the album is part Return to Hard Rock, part kind of Americana. And this is a ballad, and... Chris and Rich both said they thought it was one of the best songs they'd written together. I picked it because it's a ballad. I didn't know if you would like it or not, but it's O Josephine. Yeah, so I absolutely love ballads, the ones that I love. The mm-hmm. ones that I don't like, Every Rose Has Its Thorn. And you could wipe that off the face of the earth and nobody can. Like, <laughs> oh, I, thank I just, you for saying what you oh said, God. Sonny. Cannot stand that song. <laughs> the problem with the ballad to me, though, is unless it connects to me, it becomes long and drawn out and draggy. And that's kind of what happened here, right? It's... The bridge was interesting. I thought that was part of the probably the best part of the song, but the song really drags. And I'm sure there's some personal connection, and that's probably why they feel like it was the best song they wrote. But I didn't get it. So it was just like, oh my God, six minutes? Like oh. <laughs> now see, in, so it felt like it took forever to end. In concert, that outro is is pretty uh it's pretty powerful. And they'll drag this one out a little bit. It's kind of a misnomer that the Crows are a jam band. They, they, they're not like Fish where they jam every song. They would have three or four songs uh, that, they would j- that they would jam usually every night. But the difference between them and like Fish, like I'm not a Fish fan. They just noodle. Uh, the Crows jams, no matter how long they are, always ended in a big crescendo. So there's always this big, big payoff. But uh, O Josephine is a big favorite of Ian. Yeah, that's right. I, I this was a highlight of the album for me, and I thought it was a real. I, I like the way the song builds to that powerful ending. I think it's good dynamics, and it's really, as David mentioned, it really opens itself up live for a, a cool kind of twin guitar thing at the end in concert. Yeah, and I listened to it several times because I really like "She Talks to Angels," mm-hmm. right? I really like that song, so I'm like, okay, there's got to be something I'm missing. So I go back and listen to "She Talks to Angels." I'm like, okay, what's the difference? Went back to this one. And I'm like, is it just because I've heard the other song 10,000 times? Is that what it was? I liked it from the first day I heard it. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what it is about that song. I don't know if it's the guitar tone. I don't know if it's the mood of the song. I don't know if it was the video. It could have been the video Mm -hmm. that connected me because that that kind of fit with the song that was going on. I just couldn't connect. Like, to me, She Talks to Angels is 100% better than this. Yeah, I mean, it makes 100% sense what you're saying because – Obviously, David and myself and, and, and the majority of the the listeners that we have 
have all connected with the Black Crows in a very deep yeah. way. And it's interesting to hear your opinion where it doesn't necessarily, they don't grab you in the same exact way. And I think that's very, it's very interesting to hear the other side of the coin. All right, Ian. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, no, it is. I, 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 this is this is this fascinates me. Really does. Hearing your opinion on it, because we're, because we're used to being surrounded by folks that are very very like minded. So it's very interesting to go outside of that. You know? Yeah. All right, Ian. The next five years. Why don't you? Uh, why don't you take each one of them? Yeah, the first one I picked also comes from the Southern Harmony record that you know spawned Remedy and. And uh, has my morning song on it. This was another one of the singles. I thought this went in a more ballady direction. It was a little slower. I think I picked this one because of that and because it shows off Chris's more R&B tinged type of soulful vocal. So I thought that's why I threw that out there. And that's uh, Thorn in My Pride. Yeah, I liked that the instruments came in one at a time, right? And then the shh, yeah, <laughs> right? So that, you know, there's a, I call them earworms, right? So it's right. an earworm that gets you interested because you don't hear that a lot, right? Mm -hmm. To me, it was more of a mid-tempo song than probably a ballad. I mm -hmm. really liked the verse melody. I didn't love the chorus. And uh, I, so by the time I got to the chorus, I'm like, oh, man, can you punch me with the chorus? Because I think I'm really getting into this song. And he kind of lost me at the chorus. Like, it wasn't memorable, right? So then the song got long of the tooth for me because the chorus is repeated. And I'm like, oh, man, I wish I want to like this song. I like, like, half of it. <laughs> <laughs> now, did you did you like the piano breakdown in it? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. That, I that's, that was that's, yeah. yeah, that's the late Eddie Harsh. Yeah, this song, you wouldn't like it in concert e uh, either. It easily can get 20 minutes or more. But they, <laughs> but they, but they have a jam to it that gets probably one of the fastest things they they ever play live uh with the harmonica but there's three songs that a lot of people that are hardcore crows fans will tell you they think define the black crows one is my morning song another one is wiser time off amorca which was a radio was on the radio we didn't pick it and then there's this one for most people amongst the stuff that that's been released but yeah, this one had a video it was on mtv i think it was the second single wasn't it ian I believe so, yeah. Yeah, second single. So, all right, Ian, what's the next one you have for them? Next one I picked comes from the same album. I find that to be their most hard rock kind of album. This wasn't a single, but they opened the subsequent tour for that album with this, and it's just a, a rock tune right out of the gate. I really thought of all the songs I picked, this one and, and the one following might have been the ones that of, of my choices that connected with you most. This is No Speak, No Slave.
Yeah, so, okay, I'm like, all right, we got a guitar riff. We got rock now. I thought, okay, this is rock. All right, Chris Vocal comes in. The guitar's doing a little fill after his verse line. I'm like, nice, right? There's a little chug-chug going. Like, okay. Guitar solo was even a little more rock, a little more uncontrollable, right? The wah pedal was getting to work out. The fuzz pedal's getting to work out. And the song ended cool. My only wish was that the chorus was a little more poppy because it's not memorable, Mm. right? And I'm like... I think he was trying to sell me on the story and he almost did, but he didn't like finish it with the chorus. And one of the things that happens in a lot of the melodic music that I like is the chorus is the thing that sticks in you. And I like a lot of pop music, right? Mm-hmm. Love Richard Marks and journey and, you know, hollow notes. Like I said, mm-hmm. they're all chorus. Mm-hmm. That's what you remember. That's the melody, right? So I'm kind of used to that. So when that's not there, it's hard for me to get sold on the song. I would say I'd like 90% of this song. Now, I sent you a video of them opening up uh, MTV Spring Break. This is what they would open on that tour with. And Chris was actually somewhat tame in that one I sent you compared to some of the other ones. But that's got to be a top five heavy song for them, right, Ian? I would say so, yeah. Like I said, I saw them live four times in 14 months, right at the front end of when they started touring the states right mm-hmm. so i'm assuming they've been a band a long time before moneymaker came out but so i kind of saw that first 14 months and he went from like crazy in the clubs to a little more tame by the time the fourth time came around with the san jose arena mm-hmm. right. he was taming himself a little bit but it's he's got uh that joe cocker thing going right like it's just like these uncontrollable urgy moves um, that's okay. I mean, who cares? Right? Did you, the voice is the voice. Did you yeah. see them opening for bands? Is that like with Aerosmith and Hart? And... Yeah, the first time I saw them, they opened for Junkyard. That mm-hmm. was in April of 90. So you saw um, one of the few. That that didn't last long. <laughs> no, they played at the Omni, a club in Oakland that held like maybe 300 people. Then I saw them four months later. They opened for Hart at the Concord Pavilion, which probably seats 8,000 people. I used to live around the corner from there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they came back and headlined a club in San Jose about three months later. And then they came back in June of 91 and played at the San Jose Arena with Jellyfish opening. Yeah. So it was yeah. like in 14 months, they went from opening this little club in Oakland to the San Jose Arena. And I'm like, holy cow. It was a pretty <laughs> meteoric rise for them right at the beginning. They, 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 <laughs> yeah. they caught on quick. Yeah. Which, yeah, which had to be jarring for them as as human beings. You know, that's got to be a lot to take in in that such a short amount of time. You know. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, think about it. In the first two years of their existence, they opened for Robert Plant, Aerosmith, ZZ Top, and Hart, all four in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You're gonna yeah. you're gonna pick up your chops pretty quick. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, with, with with all of those with all of those people. Yeah, I mean, they had this like. Once once she talks to angels hit and hard to handle hit the it was oh, just yeah. a rocket ship and that album was on the top forty charts for ever you know was it like five or six million copies sold it's one of the one of the better selling debuts of all time and and I always say it's a miracle that they connected the way they did because at that time your choices were basically like Poison and Warrant or like Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey. You know, there wasn't a lot of in-between, and there wasn't a lot of people playing this kind Because the record label didn't know what to do with them at first. They they played with Metallica. But I always say, like, you could go to, like, a Crow show back then. You may see somebody in a Megadeth shirt, and you may see somebody in, like, a Tribe Called Quest shirt or, or, or something like that. They had a broad appeal, don't you think? 
Yeah, and I think that's what helped. Helped, right? So it's part hippie. Mm-hmm. Then you got this part almost blue-eyed soul singing thing. So you're going to get some of the pop guys. Mm-hmm. Anybody's listening to Cinderella is hearing stuff like Twice as Hard going, oh, I'm interested in that yeah. too. Stevie Ray Vaughan was coming up in the late 80s, early mm-hmm. 90s, right? So that was getting some play. They kind of hook into that too. So they got, they're pulling the blues guys. They're pulling the R&B guys. They're pulling the melodic rock guys. Pull, like they just, ha- it's lightning in a bottle, right? Yeah. You, and then you got the guy that can sell it. That's the hardest part. I'm not saying what they're playing is easy, mm-hmm. but come on. The, the U.S. is littered with people that can play it if they can write it. Now, they might not be able to write it, but they can play it. But where are you going to find Chris, though? That's the problem. Right. And I think he, he's the one who connected it. Yeah, he is very charismatic as a frontman. And and you're absolutely right. Any any of the great frontmen, you can say this exact thing, and that's what puts them ahead of all these other bands that may have the chops musically, but maybe can't write the songs, you know? Yeah. The next song I picked was from the same album as Kicking My Heart Around that you enjoyed earlier. Uh, it's a later cut. Uh, it wasn't a single or anything like that, but I just thought, you know, riff-wise, it was a good rock tune, and that's Horsehead. <laughs> Yeah, I liked uh, the guitar at the beginning, right? The all right kind of reminded me of Thorn in My Pride, right? That same kind of earworm start. Right. Um, I thought the verses was okay. I thought the music was pretty cool, especially because the start, stop, and the couple of places, like you're trying to create this. We have musicianship. We got earworms. You can't just listen. We're not being, you know, we're not dragging you along. The chorus is okay. It's not great. It's just written a little weird, right? This is where, and a lot of the bands that I love ended up here, where Desmond Child would come in and say, look, you got to fix that one piece. Make it more like Bon Jovi and you're on the radio, right? And so these guys who obviously have the ability to write whatever they want, they've already got number one albums. They're not going to bring Holly Knight or Desmond Child or one of those guys with them. Like, it's not needed, right? If they're going to do that, they'll just go do a cover and knock that out of the park. Then you kind of get some of this uncontrollable stuff that is not going to have mass appeal. And so it was a chorus where it kind of lost me. That makes sense. Let me ask you, what, since you brought it up, I'm interested to know, what is your feeling on those kind of uh, secondary writers for some of the bands? Like I, the, the most notable and what always comes to mind for me is Aerosmith. But, I yeah. mean, do you think that that's kind of copping out for them to do that? Or, or what's your take on it? No, I don't think there's anything wrong with outside representation helping you because i think you get so close to something that you know you listen to the same thing over and over and over and over and over and you think it's great because it came from you you know what the raw was and you've brought it to this place so you figured you've arrived and then somebody comes in from the outside going you think you've arrived you're like halfway there dude well you should have heard what i had at the beginning i don't care what you had at the beginning what you got can't sell you want to sell or you want that it's up to you right and that's where 
these guys, these secondary writers, these folks that write for record companies, uh, you know, Alessandro Del Vecchio is doing it for every Frontiers band now. It's like, you want people to remember your music? You got to add this in. You got to add this in, change that, change that, and do this. I think it's fine. I don't think mm. there's any problem with it. I think when it's nobody's involved in the writing and it's not a cover, okay, now that's a little weird, right? Yeah. And I think Bon Bonnie Raitt, most everything she didn't write, I think. Yeah. yeah. And it's basically they're just using the apparatus of the person's talent mm -hmm. to get their music out there. That as I'm getting older and realizing who were the talented ones like Prince and who were the ones that just had the voice. And I don't know if I feel the same about it now that I did when I didn't know any better. Yeah, Prince Prince threw away number one hits. Just gave them somebody else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nothing you know? compares to you. That was, uh, yeah. you know, a throwaway for him, essentially. By the by, the yeah. way, Chris Robinson, huge Prince fan. Uh, oh, okay. his, his solo band covered uh, Raspberry Beret when he died. And oh, they, wow. They made it a little kind of psychedelic sound. It was actually pretty cool. Yeah, you know, hot take Hudson is what Ian calls me sometimes. I uh, It's a big problem for me sometimes, like Beyonce. People say, oh, she's this artist. You know, she's so talented. Look at how many people are on each song writing. So, like, I pulled up today. Her new album came out. Some of the songs, there's nine and ten people contributing to it. Is she a great singer? Absolutely. Is she a great dancer and has a great stage show? Absolutely. But if you're needing nine and ten people to help you with every song on your album, I got to think you're not really that creative. Now, you talk about, like, getting Desmond Child. Now, that's a little bit different. My understanding, a lot of times with Desmond Child, people would go to him with a shell of a song, and he would kind of like Mutt Lang would do with Def Leppard. I think that's different than I got to have all these outside people. And in reality, she probably didn't contribute it to anything. She just put her name on it to get the writing credit, if I had to guess. But yeah, you know, that was the thing in the 80s and 90s. You could resurrect a career real quick with Diane Warren or or Desmond Child. Um, there was a guy named Glenn Ballard that did a lot of people. Yeah, people made a lot of money on that. You know, and Aerosmith caught a lot of flack for some of that. But in the end, I think it was worth it because had they not had that comeback, they wouldn't have exposed themselves to an entire generation of people like me. I mean, when Pump came out, I was like 12 years old, you know, and went back. And now I love that stuff in the 70s. Did you just tell it. me that Aerosmith exposed themselves to you, David? Oh, you know yeah. what I mean. I'm, I, I'm, I'm sure it's not the first time that's been said. But uh, <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, Bruno Mars has the same problem. Uh, every song, there's like 15 songwriters. I really don't have an issue with that. It's just how I'm going to explain who that is to my kids is that guy is an entertainer. Yeah, he's he can sell it. I can't sell that. Yeah. The fifteen guys write it for me. I can't do jack with it. He can. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I'm I'm in agreement with you, and that's interesting though. Like, I'm I'm being completely honest with you, Sonny. This thing with you is it's fascinating, because like Ian said, we're we're getting to hear it from ears that don't listen to it the same way we do, and and that's interesting. You talk about on Horsehead. Maybe if they'd have had somebody else come in and sweeten up the course to it um that song is actually probably that and there's a song called virtue and vice are probably the songs two most loved off that album by people like us that opening riff is sick man that that rich plays and rich is known for playing and like if you go see him in concert he changes guitars every song he's playing in all these different tunings and 
and everything. And, and we've heard, we know a, a couple of times other bands that are famous and, and people in them that are, you know, considered really good guitar players, they go to try to learn these parts and, and that Rich plays and they go, uh-oh, uh, this is a little more complex than it sounds. But he is uh, he is great with kind of the sludgy riff and the, the distortion and, and, and all of that. And so uh, that's what makes this song really good for me. All right, Ian, what you got next? Next is a kind of a, a late entry for the Black Crows. It's from their last studio album of, of completely original material. And that's a song that I thought I picked because it, I, it has a very distinctive Rich Robinson riff. Now, knowing what I know about your opinion of some of the other songs and, uh, coming along here, the, the time might have been a little long for you on this one, but that's been a long time waiting on love. All right, so I think, Sonny, we should tell you the circumstances around this song. So you're familiar with the band, you know, the way up on Cripple Creek. Yeah. So LeVon Helm, the drummer, lived in Woodstock, New York, and he converted this barn into a recording studio. And on Sunday nights, he would just, at like 11 o'clock, he would show up with whoever's in town, and they would just play, and people were welcome to come. So what the Crows did was they basically moved to Woodstock for a month and lived on his property and wrote these songs while they were there. And every Saturday night, they would open it up and let people, a hundred people come in there and listen to them. All the songs on that album are live takes in, in front of people. And so that was kind of cutting edge at the time. This is a double album that you would absolutely hate from top to bottom if uh, you listen <laughs> to it, because about half of it is kind of Americana stuff. It's a double album. I, I can trim it down to one album, and it's it's a really good album. I know what you're going to hate about it, so I'm not going to put words in your mouth. I'm just going to let you go ahead and say it. Uh, let me start with, it was a pleasure meeting you guys. <laughs> <laughs> just in case you hang up. Because, oh my God, I thought Huddy was punishing me. I'm like, I, I don't remember doing anything wrong. Like, why am I getting punished with it? So the first time I listened, and I'm like, oh, my God, this song is a little rough of a listen. So I look over at the, the clock, and I'm like, they still got four minutes left? Oh, my <laughs> God. Like, the music was okay. And I'm like, all right, can the chorus save the song? And it didn't. And then I looked at it going, oh, my God, the pre-chorus just drags. It's seven minutes I thought the audience clapped at the end because they were glad it was over. Like, I wasn't <laughs> sure. That was a really, really tough listen. That one was. All right. So the outro on this is one of my favorite outros that they do. Uh, Luther and uh, Rich just absolutely tear it up. 
I think Ian probably picked this one because it is a little bit of a heavier guitar tone. One of the things I like about it is the percussion on it. But uh, after we heard your thoughts on a couple, I was like, man, when we get to a been a long time, it's going to get, as Sonny would say, brutal. Oh, I haven't got there yet. Oh. I'll, be, I'll be honest with you. I'll be honest with you. If I had if I had a little more insight into uh, what made you tick beforehand, I probably wouldn't have picked this one to put it on there. I picked it based solely on the fact that it was a heavy riff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, Appreciate Ian, it. team up for the last one. Oh, and I know why maybe, David, when you uh, had this, you assembled this as the last one. Because, uh, again, I picked this one. This is from Amorica, the third studio album. I picked this one because it was more of a rock song, but I, I can already tell that this one goes a little weird and it might not sit right with Sonny. So let me see what you think about this one, Sonny. This is uh, P25 London. This one was brutal. This one was the brutal. <laughs> it just it feels like they're trying to be seventies Alice Cooper, and I do I don't like seventies Alice Cooper. Alice I think eighties Alice is the best Alice, right? So the whole song was just a little weird, and I, I'm like, should I be listening on acid? Like I'm not exactly <laughs> sure. And then I started thinking, I'm like, all right, I'm at the end of this list. Oh my god, if this was the first song I'd ever heard. I would have never listened to a Crow song again, right? Thank God the first song I heard was <laughs> twice as hard and jealous again, and not this. Yeah, Sonny, this was fun. I, I, it, it's it's fascinating. Like I'm sure Ian and I are going to be talking about this for a while. I mean, yeah, you, you ought to. I, you know, maybe I need to return the favor and do this with the Kiss album uh, for one of those random Kiss no, albums. <laughs> you got to listen to all the Heat albums. Oh, and God. come up with the twenty two. Oh. <laughs> Oh, I let let Ian listen to Rock Your Body earlier today. Yeah. Um, And to me, with the Crows, it's interesting because my introduction was not MTV to the Crows. My introduction was Tower Records. mm -hmm. So, you know, you would go in and ship through records or whatever, Mm -hmm. and they'd be playing music. And this is like early 1990. Homie must have had some sort of promo, right? So whatever record he was playing stops Mm -hmm. or whatever CD, if there was a six CD change. I don't know what the hell he was using. Mm -hmm. And it stops, and I heard the first line to Twice as Hard and mm-hmm. went to the counter and said, who is that? And he goes, we don't have that for sale yet. But I went, who is it? Yeah. I don't care if you don't have it on sale. <laughs> it's like, I've not heard that before. That is awesome. Yeah. Well, <laughs> if, you, cool. if, if you know, when you go see them on this tour, uh, that's the first thing you hear is those opening chords from Rich. Yeah. And it is yeah. L-O-U-D. It is it is loud. I, I was second row when I saw him here recently, you know, and which yeah. volume doesn't bother me. It was very, very loud. So what's what's going coming up going on with Growing Up Rock? I know you guys y'all don't miss a week at all, and I don't know how you do that, but y- y'all have never missed a week since you've been going. Yeah, so we got lives. It's not that we don't have lives. Um we're just celebrating five years coming around. Uh, um we sometimes record ahead at times, right? And take advantage of that. 
But uh, no, we do interviews. We do themed episodes. We'll do game shows. Like, we're kind of all over the place. We talk a lot about the rock that we grew up with, but then we venture off. We like a lot of the new music. So we're kind of part old music and part of the new music, and a lot of it's coming out of, like, Scandinavia and that kind of stuff. And there's some great bands, and they're just a little bit different, right? But they got the 80s flavor to them a little bit. Um, and then we both love pop music, too. So every once in a while, that ends up happening. So it's, you know, it's two guys talking. We didn't know each other until – Five years ago, we met, started a podcast, and started going. So it's been really good. Yeah, I really love those episodes where y'all pick a certain date. Like I think you picked the day that Richard Randy Rhodes died, or yeah, and yeah. and you you go through the charts, like the yeah. the top forty albums or what are top one hundred sometimes, and y'all talk about those. I find those fascinating because first of all, I hear stuff that I've never heard of before. You know, like right. like there's some random band, you know, like Tapau. You know, uh, yeah, remember yeah, them? Yeah. You know, they'll have like yeah. a little bit of a hit, but then you, you, you don't hear T'Pau played on anything now. I like those. I, the album review ones are, I, I really love. Um, I love almost any podcast that does album reviews, but um, there's so much fun. Y'all have a different podcaster on. Uh, the Van Halen one was fascinating. Uh, the Def Leppard one has been good. Well, Sonny, uh, I always like talking to you and you're always just, uh, you're, you're a fun person to to get to know you've always been very generous to me whenever we, whenever we see each other at rock and pod, you've been on my podcast, did a Prince podcast and y'all let me come on growing up rock, which I, I really appreciate that. We always let our guests pick a song to play us out. Does not have to be a black crow song can be any song that you like. And we'll let you, uh, we'll let you play us out. No, I think we'll stick with the crows. I think we need a spelling lesson. So we got to go with Blackberry. Okay. Ian will cue up a great bootleg, uh, version of, uh, a Blackberry. Sonny, it's always a pleasure. We appreciate yes. it. Everybody will be back with you next week and uh and stay tall. Keep your nose